I'm Elena Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. In the 80s, Compaq became one of the fastest growing companies in American history. Compaq pioneered the idea of building a computer that was compatible with IBM's software. Back then, IBM was the dominant player in the personal computers space, and their software was used everywhere, which is why it was crucial that Compaq's computer was compatible with it. Karen Walker was vice president of operations at Compaq. She controlled capital investments, totaling $1 billion. Karen oversaw the construction of 11 million square feet of Compaq's offices around the world and helped grow Compaq, which became the largest supplier of PCs in the 90s. To support the show, you can write a review on iTunes or send me a tweet at Tech Women Show. To learn more about the topics of the shows, sign up for the monthly newsletter by going to thewomenintechshow.com. Thank you for listening. Karen Walker was Compaq's employee 104 as vice president of operations. Karen, welcome to the Women in Tech show. Thank you. I'm uh, really excited to be here today. You joined Compaq in 1982. What kind of personal computers existed back then? Well, it was, uh, it's very interesting to look back on because we were just at the beginning of the era of personal computers, and so not very many is the direct answer to your question. You know, it was sort of the era of mini computers, which were the size of most conference rooms today. You know, we were existing with five and a quarter floppy disks at that time, and um, the computers, what we had in the way of personal computers, were very large with very limited capability, uh, but they were what we had, and we were uh, beyond happy to have them. So if you think about sort of in August of 1981, that's when IBM first announced their personal computer. And then in November of 1982 is when Compaq announced the first portable IBM-compatible computer. And so it was a really early in the era of personal computers. What made this first computer from Compaq game-changing? Interesting question. So there were a couple of things. When we were in a moment of time when the market for personal computers you know, was just beginning to be realized, so it was a large, fast-growing market opportunity, and we happened to be not only um, one of the first to market with a product, but the first and only that were compatible with the IBM PC. And so if you wanted a portable computer that you could use at work, which was the IBM thing, right? They were the, the gold standard for being used in corporations. Uh, and he wanted something that was compatible and portable. Compaq was the choice. Because back then IBM was dominant, right? Yeah, so it was early, so there wasn't really, a, back in the early 80s, there wasn't really anyone who was dominant, but, but clearly um, IBM, because of their name and their brand and their history, they would be dominant, and uh, they were the company that we needed to be able to compete successfully with. Let's talk a bit more about your time at Compact. In the past, you've talked about strategies for resolving conflict. Mm-hmm. What is an example of a conflict that you encountered during your time at Compaq? 
Oh, yeah. I'd like to answer this in two ways. One is one that I didn't resolve very successfully and why I think that was, and then something that I did resolve successfully and, and why I think that was. So as I look back over the 14 years that I was at Compaq and the tremendous growth um, that we went through, you know, sort of growing from no sales when I joined to about $15 billion in revenue by the time I left, and from, as you said, 104 employees to about 17,000 by the time I left, it was tremendous. Um, and so there were all the time constant conflicts because we were trying to get a lot done and you just didn't have time to you know, cross, cross all the T's and dot all the I's. Uh, but it was also a time when people were working very collaboratively together because there was always more to get done than we had time to do. But one thing that really st stood out for me and answered your question is, was this. So I was working on a project that was a very large infrastructure project, and it was suggested from the board, this was late in my tenure at Compaq, that I hire a very specific project manager uh, from the area. And this came from a board member whose name may be familiar to you, Ken Lay. Uh, who was the head of Enron at that time, prior to their implosion. Oh, yes. And so I get secondhand that Ken Lay would like for me to hire this specific project management firm. And so I added them to our, you know, our list of uh, people to get uh, proposals from, and they came in at a million dollars more than the person that I chose. And I got so much <laughs> backlash uh, from, uh, from the boss uh, at that time. Oh, this was after our founder left which I never anticipated because I thought for a million dollars this is so obvious that you would choose the other person uh, that it never occurred to me it would even be a question. But I had failed to take into account all of the political factors that were going place. I had just missed that variable. Um, and so I, that was not resolved in a way that was very um, useful. And then I think about all the conflicts that were resolved, um, and they were resolved in ways and in times when politics weren't such a factor. Um, and of course, I got better at resolving politics, which I realized that they were. But I, I think about the area that I was involved in, which was infrastructure, was the longest lead time for the company. And so what I had, and they were also really large financial commitments on the part of the organization. And so what I had to do to resolve conflicts was really to build consensus among the senior leadership at the organization about what we needed to do and where and when. And by doing that, by understanding the concerns of all the parties involved, and by coming up with solutions that met or optimized those concerns, I was able to get approval for almost everything um, that I ever needed to do for myself and my organization. You mentioned that once you identify there were politics, that you got better at resolving politics. Mm -hmm. Was this through the consensus part that you just mentioned? In part, but one, partly it was just uh, recognizing that that was an issue, right? Because for a long time at Compact, our founder, Rod Kane, you know, I hope we'll talk about a little bit later, was so uh, really amazing at just stomping out any whiff of uh, things that I would consider to be uh, non-useful politics that I just wasn't prepared for it when it actually came along. And this was, of course, after, after Rod had, had departed the company. But the way that I got better at it, there's actually... One of these things I use with my work now is we think about what motivates people. It's usually either achievement, affiliation, or power, and some combination of those things. And I have a very high achievement motivation, and I think most people that, um, that go into tech companies, especially early stage, also have really high achievement. That's why we're there. We want to get things done and make a difference. Um, and I was confronted and met with people during that instance who had high power needs, and I had really discounted power needs. I mean, it wasn't until I realized that by owning 
the fact that power could be really useful to me and help me achieve and my organization achieve more, that I was able to resolve these things in a way that let those achievements happen. How did you gain more power within the organization? It wasn't hierarchical. It was more just paying attention to it. It wasn't anything in particular that was, that was given. I mean, certainly my, you know, I was a vice president and part of the senior leadership there. But it was more just a personal undertaking and understanding of what power was. So the way that I gained it was a, taking responsibility for my own power. I did a lot of reading. I took some, uh, some risks in uh, sort of lower risk situations where I tried out some more powerful strategies on my part. And, uh, and I learned what worked and didn't work. And then I saw the results of doing that in terms of being able to achieve more with the organization. So it was mostly trying a few things and seeing what worked. Yes, it just, you know, I have a, a really simple, people use different acronyms. I use plan, execute, debrief, and learn, right, as a cycle. So I'd plan for what I was going to try. I'd go try something, and then I'd, I'd look back on it and see what worked and didn't work and try again. You mentioned reading about it. Is there a particular book that you recall you were reading at the time? Uh, there's an older book called The Laws of Power, I think it is, 48 Laws of Power, perhaps. Yes, that book is awesome. I love that book. Yes, we love it. By Robert Greene. Exactly, exactly. And there's a newer book that I really love um, that's called The Elements of Power. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've had um, quite good success with that, both for myself and, uh, and with my now clients. Let's talk about the operations side of things. With the first product, the Compaq Portable, which you mentioned earlier, Compaq achieved the highest first year sales in history of the U.S. business with about 100 million in sales. From an operations perspective, what did it take to achieve such a high level of sales? Yeah, so the first thing is just that we didn't know that was going to happen, right? <laughs> so it was one thing to say, all right, we look back, we had $111 million of sales, how do we do that? But we didn't know that, that we were going to explode uh, the way that we did from a sales standpoint. And we also, we were a, a, a small band of highly motivated people working together, and we didn't know what we couldn't do. The barriers that I think uh, one might normally see, we didn't see because we just, we didn't have time to think about barriers. We were just getting things done. But I think the primary attributes that helped us, other than not knowing what we didn't know, is that we were really flexible in terms of getting things done. Uh, and we had real clarity about what the priorities were. And if there was ever a moment when the priorities seemed in conflict, you could always talk to someone and get that cleared up uh, so that you could make a decision and move on. So we made fast, good decisions. And there wasn't a lot of concern about stepping on each other's toes because we, as I said earlier, there was just more to do than anyone could do. And so you were always grateful for the help. And it was everybody working together to get it done. And since this was the first product and there were millions in sales, which you mentioned nobody knew this was going to happen, once you start seeing the interest, what happens with the manufacturing? How do you make sure you're keeping up with the public's interest? Yes, good question. So um, this goes back to the, you know, we didn't know what we didn't know. And so we, we had to get really good at um, sort of the, the planning, right, which in, in my case, because what I was doing was the longest lead time item of anything in the organization. 
And so we had to get very good at planning for upside and downside because while we had all these sales, we didn't know that someone like, say, IBM was going to, you know, the giant would decide to put us out of business. And so we had to plan for both upside and downside. So there was all sorts of consideration for flexibility. So how could we expand more quickly if we needed to? So lots of plans in place to do that. What was the minimum that we needed to have that we could own comfortably in terms of uh, infrastructure? And if we needed to downsize very quickly, what would the plans be to do that? So there was a lot of contingency planning that went on in terms of operations. So you're planning for the very different outcomes, growing a lot, and you mentioned downsizing. Yes, exactly. Downsizing didn't happen after 1985. It was actually growing a lot, compact. There were hundreds of new people coming every week due to this rapid growth. Yes. What can happen when hundreds of people are coming every new week? Well, a lot of good can happen and a lot of bad can happen from that, right? So one of the things that happened at Compaq, and I think this happens with most big companies, I think about it sort of like the phrase that I use is no dumbing down, right? You want no dumbing down to be going on in your organization. You want each new hire, uh, the, the team and the organization, to a bigger and better place. But you get to a point where your priorities, I think, get a little misaligned because of the pressures of growth and being able to keep up with the demand. And so at some point you say, oh, it will be okay just to get this seat filled. It won't be too bad just to get someone in this seat, even think they're exactly the right person. And so you begin to compromise your hiring decisions. And I think that's the biggest thing that happens to organizations that cause them over the long term to fail because you default to just good enough and you begin to prioritize something, just something getting done rather than how it's getting done and how it might grow for the future. One of the things that was great about Compaq is that in the very early days, it was considered and strategized as a big company in the formative stages. So we made a priority of over-hiring. So we didn't hire for today's job. We hired for a job that we would need done 18, two years, 18 months, two years, three years down the road. And that way, we tried to have extra capacity in terms of the people that came on board And we also paid as much attention to how people got things done as well as what they knew how to do. So you had to be able to work in that team collaborative environment in order to be successful at Compaq. Did that over-hiring end up working? Yes, (laughs) it did. And the reason it did was because we were growing so fast, and so we needed all of that. Uh, And I've certainly worked with organizations um, since who over-hired, and then the company's growth stalls. And then you have turnover because, you know, the the A plate, you're you're hiring A players, right? Mm -hmm. And you have to have A-level work to give them in order for that that to to work for them. During your time at Compaq as a VP of operation, what were your day-to-day duties like? Yeah. So I was um, in charge of all the global physical infrastructure which, as I mentioned earlier, was the longest lead time item at the company. And given that both the growth and the way that we were growing, a big part of my job, now this is not true when we were 100 people, right? But as the organization grew, I ended up with a staff of, I don't know, 350 or 400 people, and then thousands of contractors and consultants all over the world. And I had a expense budget of about 50 million and I spent about a billion dollars on infrastructure while I was there. So a big part of my job was strategic. You know, what do we need? Where do we need it? When do we need it? And how are we going to make that happen? And then um, I put together these global teams of people. I stood up these global teams 
to uh, get that infrastructure in place. So there was all of the big ideas, the big picture of what we need. There was the gaining consensus and getting approvals for that. There was all of the administration and budgeting for that. And then there was the making the teams work um, and making sure, because if, if we weren't successful, the company literally couldn't ship. And so we would be a stumbling block in the growth of the organization. Or when times were slower, we could be a drag on the organization's revenues and budgets if we weren't able to, to be flexible enough, as I said, in either direction, upside or down. What do you do in those cases when you see something's becoming a drag? At Compaq, what we did was, as I mentioned earlier, we were very flexible in our arrangements. And so if we could see that, as we did in the early 90s, that we were going to have excess capacity, almost all cases we had planned for that. So we had leases rather than owned space, right? So you get out of your leases. Um, have some temporary workers instead of full-time workers, so you let those go. So you, you just have to plan for the, the contingency around that and then be prepared to execute on that plan. What was Compact's treatment of women in authority like? Oh, that's a really interesting question. So I can't really think about it as Compact's treatment. I have to think about it as the individuals in the organization. And I will say that for Compaq, we were led by an extraordinary CEO, one of our founders, Rod Canyon, who was and, and is just, uh, he's an amazing guy. And because of who he is, he stamped out any whiff of discrimination or politics in the organization. It just, it just wasn't allowed. It wasn't part of the culture. And so my experience of treatment was uh, primarily that I could achieve as much as I could achieve. Right? There were no doors closed to me. There were no paths closed. There was nothing standing in my way because of my gender. Uh, now, I will say that very early on, I worked for a VP, and after a couple of years in, and let me just say, I went to work at Compaq when I was 25 years old, mm -hmm. right? Wow. I had, like, no experience. <laughs> I was had been working at Texas Instruments for a couple of years. So, you know, I had a lot of action orientation and drive for results, but I didn't have a lot of experience. So very early on, I worked for a VP, and he called me in one day um, after a year or so, and he said, I just want you to know we weren't sure that a girl could do this job, but uh, we're really pleased that you can. Wow. And I, you know, and I, that's exactly what I said. I like, like somebody knocked me back in my seat, right? So that aside, I experienced nothing else in the way of anything except people being supportive and proud and eager to help. And it wasn't like there was a difference. And I didn't have any particular needs. I, you know, I, I actually am not a mother. I didn't have any children while I was at Compaq. And so I didn't have anything that, that I might have needed to ask for or expected to get that would be different because of my gender. So I, didn't, I just didn't have that as a dimension to deal with, and I can't say what that would have been. But in my experience, I just didn't get anything except support and achievement. Why do you think other companies, especially in Silicon Valley, don't have this model yet? Well, it's hard to generalize, of course, but my experience both with Compaq and then with the the many, many tech companies that I've worked with um, subsequent to my leaving there is that it, you know, it, it all starts with the founder and the head of the organization. And so someone said, and I'm sorry, I don't know who, that your ethics are the, the behaviors that you put up with. And so I think that's really what this is about. And so if the leadership of the organization puts up with, never mind instigates, uh, but puts up with, you know, discrimination or um, 
anything that would help, that would keep any employee from feeling like they could achieve their full potential, then that's what other people will pick up on. Mm -hmm. And if the leadership is committed to doing it differently than that, that's also what people will pick up on. Uh, so I think role modeling at the top is the most important thing. And earlier we were talking about the CEO and founder, Rod Canyon, who was eventually ousted by the board of directors. What was the internal impact of this? How did the company change? In my own personal experience, I would use the word devastating. I don't think that's too strong a word. Um, so Rod was kind of um, leader that people would follow off a cliff. I mean, he had, he had amazing loyalty uh, from not just the people that started work with him, you know, very early on, but I, I think even by the time he left, newer hires were also amazingly loyal to him. Just the force of his personality and, and his genuineness. So he was ousted in the early 90s uh, quite unexpectedly at a board meeting and was replaced by a man who was a very different personality and priorities from Rod. The day that the announcement came that he was leaving, many of the other senior execs resigned, particularly the founders. There was open weeping in the hallway. There were a gathering of employees out under in our, uh, our main courtyard at the entrance to the campus in protest. It was a very significant event. What happened after that, I think, is, is just as telling, and that is that Compaq had been really successful because we had a set of core values that we all lived by and a set of priorities that we were clear about. And those values changed, and the change caused us in some ways to act in ways, in my opinion, that really deteriorated what had made us successful to begin with. And so Compaq went on to be successful financially for a few years, but ultimately uh, I think the demise came about as a result of Rod's ouster um, and the, the change that that foisted on our culture. It's important to see again the impact of the leader, the CEO. Like we mentioned, this can help a better treatment of women, but also in this case, it's just the culture turned very different. I was reading one post that you wrote where it said people were now leaving at 5 p.m. sharp. Yes, so I had uh, one of my consultants said she could really palpably see the difference in the organization that before when she would come in, you know, there was just this hum about the place, right? And people were working at all hours to get things done. And, and I, don't, I don't mean in any way to take away from dedicated employees who, who carried on at Compaq for many years, even after I left. Mm -hmm. But there was definitely a change in terms of the culture after that ouster. Eventually, you left Compaq. Yes. And I saw that you moved to New York City and took architecture and philosophy classes at Columbia. Coming from one of the largest personal computer companies, why did you take these types of classes? Yeah, so <laughs> it's a good question. So I decided to leave Compaq in the mid-90s. I had been there for 14 years. It was time for me to do something different. It was clear that my growth path there would just be more of the same, but not different, and I needed something a little different. And I was fortunate to be able to take some time off and figure out what I wanted that to be. And so when I left, I didn't know what I wanted to do next, um, and I didn't want to know what I was going to do next because I was had been so busy at Compaq with this all-consuming job that I didn't have time to think or to think about my future. So I moved to New York uh, from Houston to take some time to figure that out. And I thought both architecture and philosophy would be things that would help me with that. So architecture, right, because I, 
always been very interested in how um, our environment impacts our work, right? And so if you think about how impactful organizations can be when they're just working in someone's garage, right? The mythical Silicon Valley startup story. And then you look at how organizations who are working in, you know, three, four, five hundred dollars square foot spaces tend to sort of lose their mojo. You can see how the built environment does and does not have an impact on how we how we work. And so I was very interested in that. That's what made me choose architecture. And philosophy was just a sorting out my own philosophy about life and what I wanted to be able to do next. Currently, you are a consultant and executive advisor to CEOs and also senior leaders to grow their companies. How is growing a company different now than your days at Compaq? Yeah, so I work with senior leaders to create and then execute their internal strategies to support their external growth. And um, it's different now in, in several ways. One is just the overall clock speed. So at Compaq, we were working uh, very fast and furious just because of the pace of our growth, but it was uncommon. You know, there wasn't really a tech scene at that time. There weren't a lot of startup companies in the tech world. And so Compaq was an anomaly versus being something that's considered the norm. You know, Silicon Valley was a much different place then than it is now. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were on what I think was then referred to as the Silicon Prairie or something. Yeah, because it was in Texas, right? Yes, exactly. We were, we were headquartered in Houston, Texas. Um, and I could refer you to, there's a really good new documentary that came out last year that was premiered at South by Southwest called uh, Silicon Cowboys. It was made by uh, Jason Cohen, who's an Academy Award winning director. And um, it's a little campy because it throws back to the 80s. But I think the whole story of what went on at Compaq and what was different about our times then is there. But overall, I think clock speed's important. Right now, talent is everywhere, right? And we have access to it. So when we were, you know, we were in Houston, Texas, trying to hire a lot of technology employees, there wasn't a field of people to draw from, and our access to working remotely and our mobility was different, right, which is part of what made Compaq successful, because we were in the portable computer business, at least initially. Um, I think the other thing is that um, from a, a mergers and acquisitions standpoint, there's certainly a lot more of that going on in the tech world today than there was then. And then, as now, a lot of people get paid for making the acquisition, uh, but not very many people get paid for making it work. And so I think the attention to detail about getting the value out of the integration is, uh, is really important. And I know that's something that Compaq, I would say, did not do well with its later acquisitions, such as uh, DEC. What about IPOs? When should a company aim for one? Yeah, so I'd say IPO or, you know, giant private equity investors, right? Because we've um, certainly seen a lot of tech companies go that route. You know, I think the overarching question is, you know, how does this further your long-term goals, both individually, of course, but also for the organization, right? So how do you optimize those goals and when does it make sense to take in the cash, but also the responsibility of reporting out uh, publicly like you have to do with an IPO. And it's very interesting that you mentioned the goals because Dell went from being public to now being private because of priorities and goals. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I have a good friend who's a CFO, now COO, for a tech companies who's taken, uh, I don't know, probably a handful of them public. 
and is now working for a company that has significant uh, private equity investments. And she said to me a couple of months ago, she said, I don't know why anyone would go public these days because you can get the same things done now you know, through private equity. Having said that, I have a number of clients who, one in particular, that just went public a couple of months ago, and they're thrilled about it because it's given them a platform to be able to expand what they do and reach more customers and, uh, and to continue to grow their business. And uh, they're doing that very well. Last question. What other things do you like doing aside your work from consulting? Oh, yeah. Well, let me just say I love my work, and the reason I do it is because I still get, you know, I work with interesting people who are growing, and so that's kind of a, a theme in my life is uh, helping organizations grow. So I won't give that up until I find something else I enjoy doing better. But, you know, I, I read constantly, um, and I'm pretty indiscriminate. Oh, I wanted to mention Rod Canyon's book, Open, mm -hmm. um, speaking of reading, because he wrote a book about Compaq and how we ushered in the era of modern computing, which I think is... Uh, is a good read. So I read constantly. Um, I've recently taken up rowing, so sculling, and uh, it's given me uh, a reason to get back in the gym because I want to be stronger to be able to row on a team and to contribute, and I find it also to be very meditative. Uh, I'm a Zen Buddhist and have been for, I don't know, 25 years now or so. Wow. So I meditate and do uh, meditation retreats frequently, which is my way of uh, turning myself off and to help me uh, sort of pull back and get out of the day-to-day -day and the urgent and look at the big picture. And I saw you, you also have a podcast. Oh, I do have a podcast, yeah. It's called No Dumbing Down. Uh, it's available on iTunes or on my website, uh, which is oneteamconsulting.com. I have a newsletter and then just uh, generally available at speaking at conferences and things. Mm -hmm. And I'll include all this information, the books we reference, the link to your website and the show notes. Oh, terrific. Well, Karen, it was really great talking to you today. Thank you for taking the time to come on the show. Oh, I really appreciate the opportunity, and uh, thank you for the interesting questions. Thank you. Thank you.